0: I'm, uh, I'm very excited to be here. It's been a while since I've been here. You probably realize that. And I think we all know why. Zach. What are we going to do about this Zach guy? It's becoming a problem. Um, and uh, I realize that, you know, it's, it's for four months I've put up with this now. I must stop this Zach from doing guest speaking. But How? And I came up with an idea, a wonderful idea. And, and my first idea did not work. The, the very nice officer came to my house and you said, you can't just put on Kijiji that you want somebody eliminated. It's not what I meant. It's not what I meant. Uh, but uh, what, it, what it was is uh, I thought, you know what? If I can't stop him from doing a better job than I do, what if we hire him? Because no one calls Mark a guest speaker because he works here. And soon Zach will work here and he will no longer be a guest speaker either. And I've realized that if I want to hang on to my self-proclaimed title as Kingsway's number one guest speaker, I need to be Kingsway's only guest speaker. So I'm working on it, but I'm, I'm back on top, baby. I'm very excited about this. And I, sorry, I just, I realized I made eye contact with Rick when I said baby. Now it feels awkward. But, uh, but uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's exciting for me. Um, and I, I hope it's not too early to simply say, uh, Merry Christmas. Uh, it's... Uh, I'm a Christmas guy. I know that's not really a hot take for a guy standing in church speaking, but Christmas is a big deal in our, in our family. Uh, we go all out for Christmas. We get very excited about it. We've been, we've been decorated for a few weeks now, and, uh, and we're ready to go. And, uh, and I, I, I kind of, I'm all in, right? Like, I, I'm in for the movies and, and, the, and the songs and all of that stuff. And I was actually reading an article in Christian Today magazine. Did anybody get that fine publication? Do you? I didn't even know it was a magazine. I Googled it. But I was reading an article anyway, online article, and uh, they'd done a survey of all, their, of all their readers of the top 10 Christmas songs or Christmas carols, I think they called it, uh, that, that people who read this magazine. So you can kind of assume there isn't jingle bells and that sort of stuff in there. These are the Christmas hymns, the Christmas carols that you're likely to sing in a church, that sort of idea. And they had this top 10 list. and I thought it might be good to see uh, how many of the top 10 you guys can get in two minutes. So I'm going to time you here. And I'm going to give you two minutes. If you think you know, just put your hand up. I'll point at you. You yell it out. Uh, that's how formal we are here. So here we go. Yes. Joy to the world. Joy to the world not in the top 10. Shocking. Silent night. Silent night there you go. Number two. Away in, a manger. Away in a manger. Not in the top 10. Don't get angry with me. I did not write the article. I did not begin the magazine. Wow. Oh, Holy Night. Yes, that's number one on the list. Wish you, Wish you a Merry Christmas? No. Come let us adore him. Yes. No. No, not on there. Sorry. Hark the Herald Angels Sing is on there, I believe. Number five. Number five. Come all ye faithful. Yes, on the list. Little Drummer Boy, not on the list. No. Mary, did you know? Do not know if she's on the list. She is not. No. No. Did not make the list. These are good songs, though, right? What else? We Three Kings. We Three Kings. Not on the list. I'm going to give you two hints, because there's two that you'll probably never get, because I'd never heard of them before. Coventry Carol is number eight. Anybody know it? It's mostly not in English. I, I don't even think it's in any language. I think it's just, uh, it's just kind of uh, some, some noises. And, uh, and the number four, this was the shocking one for me. Number four, In the Bleak Midwinter. That is a song. I started listening to it. I got about three minutes in, I turned it off. It is the most depressing thing you've ever heard. I would rather listen to Christmas songs about grandma kissing Santa Claus and getting run over by his rain. Like, I, I could not believe how, how dreary that song was. But it's number four on the list. Number four. Any more guesses? I'll give you a hint. Yes, O come, O come, Emmanuel. That was my hint. There's a couple left on the list that start with the word O. A little child Bethlehem. What child is this? Not on the list. A little town of Bethlehem. Whoever said that, yes, on the list. Not on the list. O come o, come. o come, o ye faithful. Yes, that's number number six on the list. Your time is up. Your time is up. The few that you didn't get was, um, God rest ye Mary gentleman. was number three. And number 10 was It Came Upon a Midnight Clear. Well, that's the, uh, the top 10, if you will, based on this survey that they did. And I mean, that, that checks out for the most part, except for that one song that was missing that caused so much disturbance in the crowd here. But uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to write an angry letter to the magazine and say, what are you guys doing? But... Uh, uh, I also like this list. You, you Google, you know, top 10 Christmas song list. You get 4 million responses. And I, I kind of like this one because, one, I wanted to have just kind of the Christmas standards that you might hear in a church. But I also, want, I also liked their choice of number one, O oh Holy Night. That is by far my favorite my favorite Christmas song. I could listen to that on repeat over and over again. I imagine my disappointment when we didn't do it this morning. I just felt like it was just miraculously going to be on the list. Maybe all three songs today would have been Oh Holy Night, and I would have been happy with that. But uh, but uh, I have a favorite line, and you probably can guess it. Of that song, what's the famous line that, that people so often refer to? The thrill of hope the weary world rejoices. Yes, the thrill of hope the weary world rejoices. And I got thinking about it. I got thinking about it and I thought, well, who are all these weary people? It's Christmas. Like, where, where are all these weary people? And, and I, I get it. I get at Christmas time, you know, there's a, there, people are busy. They're, you know, you got to buy presents, you got to wrap presents, you got to try to kind of keep the illusion of Christmas alive. You got to do baked cookies, you got to go grocery shopping like 40 times because every time you buy something for Christmas, your kids eat it, and then you got to go back and get it again. It, it's busy. I get that. Christmas cards anybody write and mail Christmas cards anymore? All right. I don't know why, but good for you. It's like that's, uh, that's a thing, right? You got to get the family picture. Anybody do a family picture? You got to herd all the kids together in some sort of crowd. One kid's facing the wrong way. You're like, I don't care. Just get it done, right? Like, it's, it's a busy time. And I get that, but I don't think that's what we're talking about when we talk about weary. Here's the definition of weary. It says, um, weary basically means to be tired, okay, burned out, and ready to quit, I thought, that's a long distance from, man, I got more cookies to make. I, I got to bring in, I almost said Mr. Watson, it's my teacher voice in me, but Gary said bring in cookies for the 18th, I put that on the list, and now we got to go church twice in one week. Oh, are you kidding me? Like, that's got to go on the list. It's all this busyness, but that's not what weary is. Weary is so much more than that, and uh, a number of uh, leaders at Kingsway, they've been, they've been doing a book study, and... and I'm not a leader, but I stole one of the books off the pile. And they've been reading this book, The Emotionally Healthy Leader. And it talks about this idea that, uh, you know, to avoid being burned out, it's all about making sure that you're not putting out from yourself more than God's replenishing in you. And that's what weary really is, this idea that it's like, I'm doing, 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 and I'm not taking the time to, to, to accept what God has for me. And you get tired. And you eventually you get tired and weary of doing good things, which sounds really strange to say in a church, right? But it's true. And Paul wrote about it. Paul wrote about it in Galatians uh, 6, 9. It says, he says this, let us not become weary in doing good. I jumped way ahead. Sorry, Booth. Uh, For at the proper time, he will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Well, why would Paul write that if it wasn't a thing? It was a thing that was happening in a church in Galatia 2,000 years ago, the people were becoming weary in doing good things. And it seems so hard to imagine that you would just get to the point where you're like, oh, I just can't do this anymore. And then remember the definition. You get to the point where it's like, you know what? I feel like I'm ready to quit. And so, uh, you know, the busyness of Christmas is, is kind of a new phenomenon. I even think about the year 1843, as you guys probably think about it all the time. You're like, hey, 1843. But 1843 was the year that O Holy Night was written. And fun fact, well... It's a fact. You can decide for yourselves if it's fun or not. But fun fact, uh, that's the same year that uh, Charles Dickens wrote uh, A Christmas Carol. So that's, that was a pretty good year for Christmas. They wrote that song in France and in England they wrote that book. But that, that, uh, that, that's, you know, that wasn't kind of the, the message, was it? Hey, slow down. Stop, stop spending all your time shopping. Get out of the mall and find the real meat. That, that wasn't what it was about. And it's a very new phenomenon that Christmas has become this this almost ordeal for some to try to figure all of this out. And I think that's part of the reason why we often see people come back to church around Christmas time. And I mean, part of it's tradition. I think some people just like, that's what we've always done. But I think other people, they feel this, this kind of at Christmas, you feel kind of that longing a little bit more. You feel that weariness a little bit more where you get to the point where you're like, Life, life always feels like you're running on a treadmill, right? And Christmas just turns that treadmill up to full speed. And for a lot of people, that's that moment where that weariness just hits them, and they just realize that I'm, I'm emptying out at such a rapid pace, but I'm not, I'm not taking in what I need to to avoid that burnout. And so we're going to talk about the Christmas story this morning, but probably a different version than you're used to hearing, because if I can be honest with you, The whole, you know, angels singing, a shepherd showing up, the manger, all that stuff. I mean, it's a great story. I enjoy reading it. It doesn't really connect with me. It really doesn't. And I think that's because for me, Christmas is is, is very, it's not really to do with the how of what happened. For me, it's the why. Why why would this plan be put into place? And I'll be honest with you. On paper, I always think this doesn't seem like a very good plan. That God himself is going to sacrifice his son for us. I don't know. I don't know how I feel about that, but I want to look this morning at the why, and I want to think about that moment. That uh, that moment. That Christmas morning moment that everybody knows a piece of. Even people who don't go to church, even people who are who are atheists, they know some of the story. They they, they know you know they know the part about uh, about you know the, the overreaching government who made them go on on the census. I once had a kid in youth ask me why would they make them do the census at Christmas time. Thank you. I, I laugh too, um, but it's it, it's like it's it's you know, we know pieces of it. We know the, we know the manger. There's there's no room in the what, And right. People know that. Even people who've never stepped foot in a church, they know that. They know from nativity scenes. For some reason, a camel was there. They're like, I don't know why there's a camel there, but there's a camel there. You've got wise men. You've got you've got all these components that people know pieces of. Even people who never, never would acknowledge themselves to be Christian, they know pieces of that story. And they know about Mary and Joseph, and they know about the handful of smelly shepherds who showed up, and there's a donkey, I think. And, and that's, that's what we really know about the Christmas story. A lot, of it, a lot of it has kind of been added on over the years by, by, by people who have kind of added components to that day. A lot of people don't understand that the the three wise men or the three kings or whatever you want to call them from the east weren't there that night. They arrived a little bit later. A lot of people have a hard time imagining there was, what, there's no drummer boy? Here's what I know about being a parent, and it's not a lot, but here's what I know about being a parent. If your kid has finally gone to sleep and some teenager shows up with a drum kit and says, hey, can I play a song for you? The answer is no. No, you need to go right now. This is not happening. Uh, but we, we, we kind of have all these pieces of the story, and that's all that New Testament telling. Uh, I find much more compelling to be the Old Testament telling of the story, and it's, it's, it, it explains the why, not, not the how, not the details of that night. Because, listen, very few people were eyewitnesses to that night. We have a pretty good idea of what happened, because you know, Mary would have told the story, I'm sure, many times, Joseph. They, would, they know what happened, but there were very few eyewitnesses. You compare that to the, the crucifixion of Jesus, where there would have been hundreds of thousands of people who heard about that trial. And there would have been thousands of people standing in that mob, chanting that Jesus should be crucified. And there would have been hundreds of people lining the street, watching him carry that cross up to Calvary. And we're told there was still a crowd there to actually watch the crucifixion. And there were hundreds of people who saw him as a rec- resurrected savior. That is, that is very well known, very witnessed, very detailed that little night in Bethlehem is is not nearly as much so. And so I find, I find it so interesting to look at what the Old Testament has to say about that night. And uh, so we're going to look at Isaiah today. We're going to look at a passage from Isaiah, a few chapters. And I'm going to be honest with you, part of it's very complicated. Um, it's, there's a lot of place names, a lot of words that are interchangeable with other words, and a lot of it just is hard to follow. But the part that we're going to focus on I'm going to guarantee you've heard it before. You may not even realize that's where you heard it from. In fact, I can almost guarantee that you've sung a song quoting Isaiah, and probably you've sent or received a Christmas card with a quote from Isaiah on it. And you maybe didn't even notice at the time. But it's, that, it's those circumstances I want to look at because the story of why, the story of why Jesus was born in this way, really, really focuses on a simple idea that God keeps his promises. And if, if I ask in a, in a group like this, does God keep his promises, we all immediately blurt out yes, because we have some lived experience. Or even if we don't, we know that's the answer, right? We're, we're not like, I wonder if he does. But when we look at our lives, and especially when we look at our lives in times of weariness, I think it's fair to ask and fair to wonder, does he? And so I also think when you look at the world around us and you see what's going on you know, in other parts of the world and even in our part of the world, to be honest, and you look at what's happening, it doesn't seem like there's evidence of a lot of planning there. It seems a little bit like chaos. It seems like world events are so random. And what we know is religion likes to try to explain those things in a way that makes sense. But I think it matters if God keeps his promise. And I think if you're in a time of weariness, in a time where you're like, I'm burned out, and I feel like I'm quitting. I feel like I'm done with this. I think it's important to understand that God always keeps his promises. And that's what we're really going to discover through Isaiah today. So if, uh, if, if you have your Bible, that's great. I know Mark makes you wave them around. It's okay. I'll trust you. You got it. Uh, I want you to find Isaiah. And so Isaiah, the easiest way to find Isaiah, it's pretty much right in the middle. Unless you have like a really thick map section at the back. It's pretty much right in the middle. If you open up to Song of Solomon, well, good for you. Um, but uh, keep flipping forward a few more pages. I don't want to distract you with that. So flip forward a few more pages. If it helps, it's on page 740. I, I, I'm not promising that it'll work for you, but it, it works for me. But uh, find your way to Isaiah 7. Stick your finger in there, and uh, that way it's ready for in a few minutes. But I want to start with a, a, simple, a simple statement that you've definitely heard from the New Testament. And it's, it's, it really connects to Isaiah 7 in a powerful way. But Matthew 1 tells the story, and we know this part of the story, right? An angel comes to Mary and says, guess what? You're going to have a baby. Oh, we're not quite ready for that yet. And, and of course, Mary said, and, they, and the angel says, but you're not going to have a father. There's, there's going to be no guy involved to which Mary would have said, oh, oh, <laughs> that's a problem right and and joseph finds out and uh, we've, we find out that mary's parents and joseph's parents who must have been very very good friends they decide well, you know what we'll we'll go ahead for the appearance's sake uh with the wedding and then we'll get a kind of a, a secret divorce later we don't want to embarrass mary but this is this was not considered acceptable behavior that you would be you know uh, pregnant before you were married back at this time and so we know that story and we know that an angel comes to joseph and says no he said, that's the plan of your parents. That's the plan of the world, if you will. God's got a different plan for this baby. And so you're not going to abandon Mary. You're going to stay with Mary. And of course, we know it wasn't an easy decision, though. Like, like That's just humanity, right? There's no way that Joseph is just like, okay, cool. You know, It's, it's not an easy thing, and it would have been difficult to process. But that leads, brings us to Matthew 1, 20, 21 to 23, where it says this. She, Mary, will give birth to a son. And you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel. And that means God with us. And of course, when we see that word prophet there, we may not realize that we're talking about Isaiah. Isaiah is the one who said those words. And what we need to understand is Isaiah did not say this a few days or a few weeks or a few months before Jesus was born. He said it 735 years before Jesus was born. That was a prophecy that God asked Isaiah to share with someone for a very particular reason. And that's what we're going to look at today. And so when Isaiah spoke these words, everybody who heard it was not impressed. Everybody who heard heard these words did not say, oh, fantastic, a baby. This is what I need. Nobody was in that position. They were all hearing this, and there was no impact made. The person who heard that was not filled with joy and not filled with relief and eagerly awaited that moment. The person who received that message ignored it and said, I don't care what God's message for me is. And, it's a, and we're going to spend some time this morning uh, in a bit of a history lesson, and that's good news for me as a history teacher, bad news for you, what I've learned from my history students. Uh, is we're going to spend uh, a little bit of time there. And I, I hope at the end it will be worth it, because it's complicated. But I, I can't find a way through this story without actually reading the Scripture. And so uh, at the end, you may have learned something interesting. At the end, you may say, I want my half hour back. Either way, um, an emergency guest speaker is still a guest speaker. And so I'm going to go ahead. So we know that Israel was made into a nation, right? We know that story. They were freed from Egypt. We know that story. Don't worry, I'm not starting that far back. But the, the nation of Israel had always wanted one thing. They'd always wanted a king. They'd always wanted a king because that's what all the other countries look like. And they're coming from a time where they weren't a, a, a country. They, they weren't a nation. They were a subjugated people under Pharaoh and said they wanted a king. And God said, I'm going to be your king. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to establish a, a series of judges who are going to run the country, but the king... I'm going to be your king. And so we know some of these names, like judges like Ehud and Deborah, Gideon, Samson. These were the people who God was using as he was king of Israel. And the people of Israel didn't really care for that system. They weren't a big fan of the judges. They were constantly pulling away from God. They were constantly finding themselves in trouble. They were constantly being rescued by a judge, only to find themselves in the same predicament a generation later when they did it again. The, 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 the reoccurring phrase in the book of Judges is, you know, once again, the people of Israel did evil in the eyes of the Lord. It's a consistent, common thread. And so they kept complaining, we want a king, we want a king, and we find out in, in, um, in, uh, in, uh, in First Kings when Samuel is prophesying, the people came to Samuel, who was kind of the next guy after Isaiah, and they said to him, we want a king, sorry, before Isaiah, and they said, we want a king, we want a king, and, and, and Samuel said to them, listen, Here's what kings do. They sit on a throne, they take all your stuff, they tell you what to do, and they charge you taxes. And I'm not kidding when I say this. The people of Israel said, that's what we want. We want to pay taxes to a king. We want a king. And so in the end, God said, fine, you can have a king. And that's where we got Saul, and then David, and then Solomon. And then we had this kind of uh, several generations in a row where new kings would be risen up, and they kind of were a little bit worse one after the other. And things were not going well. And so by 1735, Israel had actually split into two. They were so dysfunctional. They actually split into two pieces. Let's see if you know your history. Uh, There there was the northern kingdom. And there was the, no, Judah. Nice try. Uh, No, (laughs) kind of. So here's what we're going to find. Here's what's so confusing about all of this. Everything is named six times in the Old Testament. Like everything has got a nickname and another name. So yes, there was a northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. For, for what we understand, that's kind of what people later just called them. We had the, they had the northern, tro- the northern nation was called Israel, and the southern nation was called Judah. And so they went from having no king except for God to two kings because they were now split into half. And so I think there's a map here. And and you can kind of see here, so the the yellow color would be the kingdom of Judah, and the northern kingdom was was Israel, so again, northern and southern. But you can see where Jerusalem is, and Jerusalem is a big deal. And so the northern kingdom, Israel, was always trying to figure out how to expand their border so that Jerusalem would be part of their kingdom, because this was a real sticking point. This was a real issue for them. But at the time, there's a lot more going on. It's not just northern versus southern. You've got all of these other nations, all of these other countries who all are doing their own thing. They're not, part of God. they're not God's people, but they're surrounding God's people. And of course, we know right away we know the Philistines, right? We, we recognize that name. A lot of these other ones are names we kind of feel like we've heard, right? But these are all other nations with their own plans, with their own ideas about what territory they wanted to, to be in control of. And then there was Assyria. And Assyria was basically the only empire in the region. Assyria's it's cut off at the top. I probably shouldn't have done that, but it's cut off at the top. And uh, basically, if you think of it this way, how big was Assyria? Well, if Assyria started with that little spot at the top, Assyria would have basically taken up the rest of the ceiling here if that map had kind of continued up. Assyria was an empire. Judah, Israel were not empires. They were small kingdoms barely hanging on. And so what we know is that uh, politics being politics, we find a time where um, the, the king of Israel, the northern kingdom, he's very worried about how close he is to Assyria, right? Assyria is the bully. Assyria's in control. And so he makes a deal with Aram, which is the country, the kingdom of Aram, Damascus. So he makes a deal with them and said, listen, we need to attack Assyria before they attack us. And you don't have to be a military expert to know they were going to lose. Assyria is that big. Assyria is that powerful. They're going to lose. So they decided, listen, let's get the Southern kingdom. I know you guys don't get along, but let's get the Southern kingdom on board. We'll combine their army with our two armies. And then maybe we have a chance. They probably didn't, but then we have a chance against Assyria, or at least we can put forward a strong front and maybe Assyria will leave us alone. And so we start to, we start to see this situation arise. And I, I don't know about you. I start to feel bad for the king of the South, right? I it almost sounds like it's like a Narnia thing, but the, 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 the southern kingdom, like they're a king. I start to feel bad for him because he's in an impossible situation. He either says no to these two countries who are going to be angry, or he says yes to attacking the, the mightiest empire that existed at the time. And so his name was Ahaz. And Ahaz decides he's going to refuse Israel and Aram. He's going to tell them thanks, but no thanks. And of course, within a few weeks, the... the probable or most likely outcome starts to happen. Aram and Israel decide, you know what? We're going to, we're, we'll take over Israel first. I'm sorry, Judah first. We'll take them over. Then they have to join us because they are us. And so that's, that's what he was facing. And again, before you feel too bad for Ahaz, I have to tell you, this guy was the worst. Um, we, we tend to, I don't know about you, but I tend to think, oh, he's the king of Judah. Good guy. He has to be, right? It's God's people. He's. He's, he's one of God's uh, chosen. He's been made king. No, that's not how it works in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, you frequently see pretty terrible people being used by God to fulfill his, to fulfill his design. And so Ahaz is in that terrible list. He's a terrible king. He only profited himself, never, never did anything for the people who were under him. And I, I'm sure they must have told stories about how, do you remember how we said we wanted a king? And now we got Ahaz. And Ahaz had abandoned God's law. He had no longer made the law of the land God's law, which would have been in the past. He changed that. He rejected everything about God. He shut down temple services. So temple was in Jerusalem. So he had control of that territory. But he shut down the temples. And instead, he spent his time building monuments to pagan gods. And at one point, he was so jealous of his own sons that they might be a better king one day, he actually sacrificed his own kids on an altar to a pagan god. There is nothing in Ahaz's write-up that will make you think, yeah, but he was a nice guy. Like, he did things the the right way. In fact, after he died, um, the people of of, um, Judah, instead of burying him him in a tomb with all the other kings, they just dragged him out into the desert and dug a a hole and buried him in an unmarked grave. They wanted to erase him from their history. He was a bad guy. And he's going to find himself in a situation where God's offering to help him. And I, I, that, that took me a while to kind of wrap my head around, but this is where we find ourselves. He is, he is such a bad guy that he is the first king in either Israel or Judah's lineage who really has taken one option off the table. In the past, whenever Israel got in trouble, what did they do? Pray. They would pray, they would call on God, God would come to the rescue. Ahaz couldn't do that. He was so separated from God he had removed that option. He couldn't say to himself, you know what, let's see if God can help. He wouldn't even acknowledge God at that time. And so um, he, he, he rejected all of that. He'd made pledges to these pagan gods. He's no longer felt, and I think we understand why, he no longer felt like he could call on God to uphold his covenant. And so we, we, we see this very strange time. And so he's rejected this offer, and now they're getting ready to attack. And at one point, um, the the northern kingdom. Uh, Israel has, has put an army together. They've marched on Jerusalem. They've surrounded Jerusalem. And in the first battle, they were able to be repelled. Uh, Judah was able to kind of repel them at that moment, not from their borders, but from the city, but just barely. It was by the skin of their teeth that they had managed to, to push back uh, the army of, of Israel. And then they got the, the wonderful news that Aram was about to arrive their army had been marching from a further distance and they were about to arrive so this is the situation ahaz finds himself in he is surrounded by two armies he's basically run the gamut of what he can do he's he's low on troops he's low on you know uh the ability to fight because he's already just fought fought off the siege they are stopping food and water from coming into the city they are really on their last legs And if you kind of tuned out because that was too much background for you, I want you to tune just back in for this statement. I think it's fair to say that Ahaz was an undeserving man in desperate need of a Savior. He was an undeserving man in desperate need of a Savior. If you can't make the connection of of what I'm saying there, maybe just insert your own name. I'll say that Gary is an undeserving man in desperate need of a Savior. And that's where he found himself. And that's where we're going to jump into Isaiah 7. So if you've had your finger stuck in there the whole time, I apologize. Open back up to Isaiah 7. That's where we're going to start. And we're going to start with a very specific message. And so if you have a little green sheet of paper, uh, I may be calling on you. So I'm going to ask for the top part that's underlined. And if that's you, if you could read just what's underneath it. Because it's a a very short section here with, with 11 different strange terms that we would just not normally just automatically understand even the term Israel which we think well I know what that is well no not not anymore Israel used to be the unified country under God's rule now Israel is the name for the northern kingdom so we're going to go through all of that but Isaiah 7 starting in verse 2 and so uh, you'll see it on the screen here so it begins this way it says now the house of David who is the house of David another name for Jerusalem the capital city of Judah all right that's That's a nice name for it. So Isaiah is from the south, right? So when it says, now the house of David, he's talking about Jerusalem, which means he's talking about Ahaz. Ahaz is the king. He's capital city is Jerusalem. The house of David was kind of a a very um, flattering term for, for the position that he was in, the house of David, because that's the house that David built, right? So that's perfect. So now the house of David was told Aram. Who's got Aram? Gaudi aligned with the Northern Kingdom against the Southern Kingdom. So Aram is not part of Israel, not part of Judah. It's not part of God's kingdom, if you will. This is another country who sees benefit in attacking the uh, attacking the the Southern uh, Judah because again they want help against Assyria. So we're told that Jerusalem's been told this that the country of Aram has allied itself with Ephraim. What is Ephraim? A region in Israel was was used as another name for the kingdom for the northern kingdom. So here's where we start to get a little and we're gonna find out in this section they use six different words to describe the northern kingdom. And so this is another name. This was, this is almost like, like maybe referring to, you know, Ontario instead of Canada. So instead of saying it's the it's it's uh, the, the kingdom of Israel, he's referring to kind of the dominant position, the southern position that would have bordered up against um, Judah. So here's what he's saying. He's saying, so now Jerusalem, Ahaz, er, um, you've, you've been told that the, the country of Aram and the northern kingdom have allied themselves together. So, it says, so take heart, Ahaz. Who's Ahaz? The king of Judah, southern territory. Right. Southern kingdom, he's the king. He's the guy Isaiah's talking to. So when it says house of David, that means Jerusalem. When it says Jerusalem, that means Judah. When it says Judah, that means Ahaz. Same thing, same thing. It says this, it says, so the heart of Ahaz and his people were shaken as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. That's a pretty clever way of saying it, that the people in Jerusalem know that they are out of time. They are surrounded by two armies. They had a chance to join these armies. He made the decision, Ahaz made the decision, no thanks. We're gonna gonna try to stay out of this and it's come back to bite him. And so that's where we find ourselves. So the Lord said to Isaiah, go out, you and your son share Jeshub. so that's his son, so we don't need to to clarify that, to meet Ahaz at the end of the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the launderer's field. All you need to know is that's all in Jerusalem. So Isaiah and his son have been told to have a secret meeting. The king does not usually hang out by the aqueduct. Right? He's not going to the palace. He's not going to temple. He is going to a secret meeting with Ahaz to deliver a secret message from God. And again, these guys aren't really on speaking terms. Right? Ahaz is not a godly man. But th- this is what he has. He has this meeting, and it says this. Say to him, this is God telling Isaiah to say to Ahaz, say to him, be careful, keep calm, and don't be afraid. Do not lose heart because of these two smoldering stubs of firewood. What the heck is that? That, my friends, is a Bible slam. So, what he's saying is this. You can write that down. What he's saying is this. He says, you guys look at these two countries and you see these raging fires set on destroying you. He says, they are not. They are two smoldering stubs of firewood. They are all burned out. They are done. If Ahaz is looking at this saying, I don't think so because they're right outside. But that's the message he was delivered. These are two smoldering stubs of firewood. Because of the fierce anger, here we go, of Razin. Who was Razin? The king of Aram. The king of Aram. And Aram, and Aram is... I'm repeating now, so hang on. Keep your sheets handy. How do you align with the northern kingdom against the southern kingdom? So Razin is the king of, of Aram. Aram is one of the countries who was surrounding Jerusalem. And, and the son of Ramali. Oh my gosh, who was the son of Ramali? This was a former king of Israel. His son was Pekah. Right, so his son was Pekah. Here's the thing. Isaiah doesn't like the north very much. He will not even use the name of their king. Instead, he uses the king's father's name to refer. So he says, Ramalia's son. It's like I'm not even willing to utter the name of this guy. So instead he uses the phrase Ramalia's son. So we have the king of Aram, and now we have the king of Israel. And these two, Aram, what's Aram? That's aligned with the northern kingdom against the southern kingdom. Yep, that other kingdom that's, that's joining in. And Ephraim, where's Ephraim? A region in Israel was used as another name for the northern kingdom. So the northern kingdom and, and these two countries, and they've combined with Romalia's son, who is Pekka. Who's got Pekka? The king of Israel, northern Territories. King of Israel, <laughs> the northern territory. They've all... Come together and have plotted your ruin, saying, let us invade Judah. Let us tear it apart and divide it among ourselves and make the son of Tabeel. Oh, my gosh. Who's that? That's me. Not really too sure who this guy was, but most likely an uh, Aramian prince who would be made king. Right. We don't even know who this guy is. It's funny that last night Brian uh, uh, put it in his Bible app and he goes, that guy's not even in the Bible. It's like, he kind of isn't. But what we know based on the, the context and, and, the, and the origin of the name, he was most likely some royal family member, probably a prince in the country of Aram, who they were going to install as king. So they were not going to split Judah into two countries and take half each because that doesn't make a lot of sense for Aram, who doesn't even connect. like Geographically, they don't touch. So what they said instead is, we'll, we'll, we'll take over Jerusalem. You get to run the country through this puppet king who is one of your royal people. And guess what? If we do that, we suddenly have three armies because now we've taken over the southern kingdom. We now have somebody who, in the throne who will do everything we ask. So now we have our third army. So that's the plan. Now here's the thing. I'm pretty sure Ahaz knows that plan because there's an army outside of his door. He pretty pretty much has figured that part out. But basically what he's saying is he's saying, listen, I don't know why you're afraid of these people. He says, these two countries are nothing to be worried about. they are smoldering stubs of firewood. He says, I'm the God that has rescued your people time and time again. And he says, I have a plan. Let me tell you the plan. And so verse seven, it says this, yet this is what the sovereign Lord says. It will not take place. It will not happen. He says, that prince will not become your king. He said, for the head of Aram, Aram is? The country aligned with the northern kingdom against the southern kingdom. The head of Aram is Damascus. What's Damascus? The capital city of Aram. Okay, so he's still talking, he's saying, you know, Aram, well, their capital city is Damascus. And the head of Damascus is only Rezin. Who's that? The king of Aram. So that's three names to say one thing. He says, he says, Aram, You know, you fear Aram? Well, Aram's capital is Damascus. And who's their king? Rezin. He says, within 65 years, Ephraim. A a region in Israel was used as another name for the the northern kingdom. He says, my own people. The northern kingdom, they're going to be shattered. Too shattered to be a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria. What's Samaria? The capital city of Israel, the northern kingdom. Correct. And the head of Samaria is only Ramalia's son, who was? King of Israel, his son was Pekah. Who's Pekah? The king of Israel, northern territory. It's, it's, it's just repeating the same, the same idea. It says, you're afraid of Aram and Damascus and their king? And you're afraid of, 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 uh, of Israel and their capital of Samaria and their king, that, that, that guy whose name I won't even say? And he says this, and this should be printed on every T-shirt that, uh, that, we, uh, that we can produce here. It says this, if you do not stand firm in your faith, then you will not stand at all. And so Isaiah says this to Ahaz, private. Ahaz isn't embarrassed. This is a private conversation. And he says, the same God that has rescued you over and over again, the same God that rescued you from Pharaoh and parted the Red Sea, the same God who let David defeat Goliath, the same God who led you to victory after victory under Joshua and Gideon and Samson, all of these people, that same God is still standing with you, and he's going to do it again. And, and verse said, says this again, the Lord said, spoke to Ahaz, ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, I will not put the Lord to the test. Now that kind of sounds respectful, doesn't it? That kind of sounds like a good thing he's just done. And after all, that you, we hear that throughout Scripture. Don't put, don't put God to the test. Jesus says that at one point. I won't put my God to the test. But what we find out if we jump over, and we're not because we, we're short on time, but if you, if you read in First Kings, you actually can read kind of the historic narrative of what's happening that matches up with Isaiah, who's writing kind of his memoirs about what has happened. And so when we go over there, what we find out is King Ahaz ignored what Isaiah had to say. He had his own plan, and this was his plan. He stole all of the wealth, all of the money from the temple. He stole all of these things from God, and he packaged it all up, and he sent it north to Assyria as a bribe. And this was his plan. He said, I don't need God. I'm going to take care of this myself. So he sent all of this stuff up to Assyria, and he says this in 2 Kings 16. It says that Ahaz said to the king of Assyria, he says, I, Ahaz, I'm doing it again. I did it last time. Ahaz. Am your servant, and I, Ahaz, am your vassal. What does that mean? Well, I think we know what a servant means. He's, he's, he's saying you're in charge. He's saying that I'm here to serve you. A vassal means that I depend on you for my very being. That's what you would say to God. You would say I'm God's vassal because without God, I don't exist. This is what he pledges to the king of Assyria. He says, he says that I'm your servant and I'm your vassal. And Isaiah, upon knowing this, hears him say this, say him, I won't test your God. He already knows. Isaiah already knows this. So this is how he responds in in verse 13. Then Isaiah said, hear now, you house of David. And that means? Another name for Jerusalem, the capital city of Judah. He's He's talking to Ahaz, right? Hear now, but he says it respectfully. You house of David. Is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of my God also? Notice how he says my God, not our God my God also. Therefore, verse 14, the first half says this. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. He's saying that you don't want God's plan. You want to do this on your own. And you're saying, no, I don't want it. He says, but God doesn't care. God's God's going to give you this plan anyway. And I, I think at that moment, you know, filled with the Holy Spirit, Isaiah points his bony finger. I don't know if he had a bony finger. I think he did. This is a picture of him. I feel like he has a bony finger, but a a possibly bony finger at Ahaz. And he says this. He says, you don't want a plan? You're getting a plan anyway. Here is God's plan to rescue you. Are you ready? The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. And when Isaiah finished saying that, I imagine he said, yes. And Ahaz looked at him and said, what? What? I don't, I don't know if you understand, Isaiah. There's an army outside of our gates. If you listen carefully at night, you can hear them sharpening their blades. And your, God's plan, God's plan to save us is this. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. That's the plan. As armies prepare their attack, God promises Ahaz this wonderful plan. And not surprisingly, Ahaz says, not interested." He ignores it. He has no intention of doing it. He has his own plan. He's going to take care of this. He's already reached out to Assyria. Assyria is going to, going to hear him. Going to going to, going to help him. He doesn't need God. But what God is saying is this: God is saying, "I have a covenant with my people, and one terrible king will not sway my will. That my my, my covenant is with the people of Israel." The the, full, the Hebrew people. I don't get confused too. Not the Northern Kingdom, all of the kingdoms. He said, that's who I have a covenant with. And he said, my will will not be set aside. And so instead, God makes a promise. And that's what this was. This is the promise. Because what he's saying is, Judah, you're an undeserving people in desperate need of a savior. And so he made this promise. This isn't just a, a throwaway fact. This isn't something that Isaiah thought up at some point. God said, hey, you should tell people what's going to happen one day. It was in that moment In that moment when Judah was up against the wall that this promise was made, the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. And that was it. There's no army, no flood, no fire and brimstone from the heavens to protect them. It was just a promise of what was to come. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Emmanuel. And so over the next few chapters, we hear how God's immediate plan actually had... Judah being rescued, first by using Assyria, but then judgment came to them, and then judgment came to the north, and then eventually Assyria fell, and what followed was hundreds of years of, of this entire region being dominated by various empires. When Assyria fell, Babylon, Babylon took over. That led to Alexander the Great. I'm sure you've heard of, of, of that, and eventually all the way to the Roman Empire. It began a very dark, very difficult time. For, for Israel and for Judah. But the promise remained. But I would think if you were living during that dark, difficult, may I even say weary time, when you felt like nothing was ever going right, that you were oppressed at every turn, you might have been tempted to say, where's God? I thought we had a promise. I thought we had a covenant with God and he's abandoned us. I think I can understand that. Maybe, maybe that's not what they were thinking. That's what I would be thinking. I thought we had a covenant with God, and look what's happening. And so over the next few chapters, we hear about all of this, and eventually it tells us 65 years later, we hear that the northern kingdom was destroyed just as it had been prophesied. And then it's at the darkest moment. It's at that darkest moment when the people of Judah and the people of Israel were just at their wit's end. They were weary. They were burned out. They were ready to quit. They had nothing left to rely on. It says this in the last verse of Isaiah 8. So we're going to jump through. Isaiah 8 is all a description of how bad things had gotten. We're going to end with just the last, the last verse. It says, then they will look toward the earth. This is, the, this is God's people. Then when they will look towards the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom, and they will be thrust into utter darkness. Now that's an undeserving world that is in desperate need of a savior. And then that's when Isaiah said, at that darkest moment, as we begin chapter, chapter nine, it says, at that darkest moment, there's gonna be a great light. He says, when you reach that moment of despair, there will be a great light. And then probably the most known verse that Isaiah has ever written follows in uh, verse six, Isaiah nine, verse six, it says this. For to us, a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. That's the promise that was made. And after 735 years of of just difficult weariness for the people of Israel, a weary people in a wearied world, and to each and every individual person who was in that spot, it wasn't yet, it wasn't for 735 years, but that baby would be born, and born of a virgin, because it was a promise made, And it was a promise kept. And it may not have seen that way in the lives of many people who just kept looking towards that thrill of hope, that looking towards the Savior, who just didn't seem to be coming. I mean, it probably looked like God had abandoned His people and forgotten all about them. But He was working and He was moving until one day when that promise was kept. And so we hear the story of the baby being born. And we understand that what brought us to that point It was not a random event. It was the plan of God to rescue his people. And so it isn't hard to understand that, but I think what sometimes is hard to understand is is when we find ourselves in that time of weariness where we feel like I am just empty. I feel like the treadmill's been turned up to 10 and I feel like I'm just not keeping up anymore to know that a promise has been made, a promise for an abundant life has been made to you. And so I just want to close today just, just with what I would call a benediction, and I made it myself, so I don't know if that's allowed or not, but benediction, just it's, just, it's Latin. Bena means good, diction means words. So uh, I'm going to call it a benediction. But I would say for those of you who are in a mood to celebrate this Christmas season, I would encourage you to remember what you're celebrating by reminding you of Isaiah's word in chapter 9, verse 6, to say, "'For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father.'" prince of peace. That's why we celebrate at Christmas. We don't celebrate the events of the birth. We celebrate the birth of a Savior. And for those maybe who are feeling the weariness this Christmas season, not the busyness, the weariness, you feel like you're missing out on this abundant life that you've been promised. Uh, Can I remind you the words of Isaiah 7 verse 4 that simply says this, be careful, keep calm, and don't be afraid. Do not lose heart because of these two smoldering stubs of firewood. And that seems like a strange verse to encourage you to rely on, uh, but it's, it's a reminder that God keeps his promises and that no matter what, how difficult things seem to you, when God looks at it, you're they're just, they're just these smoldering um, fire, what was that? stubs. Sorry. Smoldering stubs of firewood. That's how God sees it. That's not, that's not how you see it, but that's how God sees it. You see this raging fire set to destroy you. You feel like you're out of options. You feel weary and you feel like there's nothing left in the tank, God doesn't see that. God sees these two smoldering stubs of firewood. That's all that's left because God's already won that. And so I just encourage us all to, to remember that we stand firm in our faiths, or we may not stand at all, that we come into the Christmas season understanding the glorious things that's happened for our benefit, not for the corporate us, but for each individual us, that this is what God has done for us. This was his plan from the beginning. And this is something that the weary world waited and waited and waited for. And I think it, how wonderful it is that we get to live in the time where we have a resurrected Savior rather than a time where we were waiting for a resurrected Savior. So uh, I just encourage you this Christmas to keep that thought in mind. That if you're feeling tired, if you're feeling worn out, God has a promise for an abundant life, a life that's refilled by him on a daily basis. And if you're already in the mood to celebrate, like I am, I love Christmas. That I remember this is not uh, just some strange event that happened 2,000 years ago. This is a promise fulfilled by the God of the universe. Let's pray. Lord, just uh, so thankful to be with your people this morning, so thankful to have your word. And I, I've, I've read that passage in Isaiah before and never really understood what it meant. It seems confusing to me, Lord, but, but to understand your word and, and the power of what was happening and, and the voice that Isaiah had in that time to speak to such an evil man and, and, and discuss with him what God's plan is. <laughs> I almost feel like I want to apologize on behalf of the nation of Judah for not accepting that, for not accepting you at your word. I'm sorry, I, I, I just wish that we, we had lived, they had lived a life where they understood that that promise was coming. And I know that so many would not have, Lord, but we live in, we live in a time of promise. We live in a time where you've promised us abundant life. And Lord, we just, we just claim that promise, uh, promise this morning, that we just claim that and just understand that regardless of how we might feel this time of year, how we might feel at this given time, Lord, that you're a God who keeps your promises. And we're thankful for that, and we are joy-filled because of that. Let's pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.